Welcome to The Brian Buffini Show, where we explore the mindsets, motivation, and methodologies of success. Today on the show, we're going to play a recording from a live event where Brian interviews author, speaker, and the former publisher of Success Magazine, Darren Hardy. Let's take a listen. Ultimately, how many of you realize that you are going to attract who you are and that the number one thing to do, right, is to grow? And so glad you're here. We're all going to work on it together. I'd love these folks to get to know you a little bit. We've been around the block a few times. Uh, we've become pals. We've got a lot of people in common. We were also had a lot of the same influences. As you and I both know, around the speaking and training world, there's a lot of folks who are great on stage. And I keep saying, man, you are brilliant on stage and better behind it. And I'd love these folks to get to know you a little bit in that context. And a question I have for you that we've talked a little bit about, but for them, who are your influences? How did Darren Hardy become Darren Hardy? Well, first and foremost is my father. Mm-hmm. You know, I, most people know that my parents divorced when I was 18 months old. My dad was only 23 when I was born, and he did what had to be done. He bucked up and took responsibility, and it was just he and I. He always says that we kind of grew up together. Mm. We were best friends because we kind of experienced the coming ups together. I just recorded a Darren Daly last weekend that talked about, you know, how one person can be an influence as an example, you know, do what this guy does. You know, and my dad was a great example in terms of his discipline and his work ethic and his never say die. And you can always beat anybody, no matter their intelligence, skill and experience, if you just outwork them and you outlast them. And so I got a lot of that sort of initial drive, ambition, He's and a football motivation, coach, right? football so, coach. Yeah. yeah. And then, uh, then I also learned a lot from warnings <laughs> from him too. And a lot of the, the things that I would feel very grateful for and blessed in my life were because I witnessed sort of him going through some very, very difficult things. So my dad, number one. And then I went to a seminar when I was 18 years old. I, I met a guy in a restaurant and we were both waiting for a table and a guy like you. I mean, it really reminds me of you. And, and I remember talking with him and the way he dressed, the way he carried himself, the way he talked. And I, I remember thinking, that's what I want. I didn't know anybody like that, but I was enamored by this person. And before he went to his table, I was asking him, you know, how can I be like what you just described about in terms of his life and his business? And he wrote on the back of a card the name of a seminar. And so I'm like, okay, well, if if I want to be like this guy, I got to go to this seminar. And then I looked it up and the seminar was $2,500 and I was 18 years old. And I thought, well, I don't have $2,500. So I guess, I guess that's it. And I called him back from his business card. I said, hey, I just want to let you know I, I'm not going to be able to go. And he said, why? I said, I don't have the money. He said, well, find it. I said, well, I don't know. He said, figure it out. He said, that's part of the personal development. That's part of the test. And so I called the scariest guy on the planet to me, which was my grandfather. <laughs> his own kids' nickname for him is Ogre. No lie, they say it affectionately, but it's not really affectionate. (laughs) World War II fighter pilot, Mm. you know, like never talked at all about anything, kind of grunted at the end of the table. I mean, there was no fishing trips and none of that. So he was very scary to me. I borrowed the money from him and he reluctantly drove me down and made me feel horrible and shamed the whole way there and back. And I went to the seminar, totally changed my life. And, and it was the first time that I realized that, oh, I don't have to be, I'm not subject to my 
circumstances. I'm not subject to my upbringing. I'm not subject to my education. I'm not subject to whatever skills and abilities I have. I can take 100% responsibility. It's not the market. It's not the economy. It's not the president. It's not any other outside factor. It's all on me. And that was very liberating for me. And then that led me to ultimately becoming under the mentorship of Jim Rohn when we were building a television network. And then another guy, Paul J. Meyer. I don't remember oh, Paul J. Meyer. Oh, awesome. oh, yeah. So the founder of SMI. Oh, yeah. He bought one of my companies, and then I did the turnaround I did in Texas for a software company was his company. So he and I got really close, and he was just a magnificent, charismatic, depth of character type of person that I, I learned and started to mimic and model as much as I could. Uh, and then, he was brilliant. I mean, yeah. my, if you start searching for quotes, you'll see Paul J. Meyer everywhere. Yeah, he was prolific. To this day, he has sold more personal development than any other author in history. $2 billion worth because he had that whole SMI franchise. Yep. And uh, they were big all over the world, mostly outside of the United States. Right. So, How many of you have heard of Paul J. Meyer? Yeah, very few. Okay. Yeah, Here, They have this thing now. He was talking all technology this morning. So if you put down your rotary phones and Google Paul J. Meyer... There's a whole treasure trove. How many of you feel like you're kind of looking for new content and there's not as much out there as you'd like that's real value-based? Good to see your hands. Great. You just got a referral. It's hardcore stuff, though. It's like 1970s type of personal development. It's like academic. You you listen to it. It was all voiceover. It wasn't Paul. The best of Paul was when they captured his own keynote talks. When it was Paul talking himself right. about his material, yeah. but they did personal development differently back then. Yeah. And uh, he wore the bow tie, didn't he? He wore the bow tie some of the time. Yeah, he was a character <laughs> of all sorts. So, and then obviously it was every achiever and super achiever that I got a chance to spend time with all. But you know, those were the core. The core ones yeah. were my dad, Jim, Paul. How did you end up in Success Magazine? How did that happen? <laughs> Uh, in 94, I kind of got hoodwinked into a meeting with these two guys that wanted to start a television network that would be personal development based. Now the television network was going to be distributed through analog satellite and you had to put this thing up on your roof yourself and you would pay $50 a month for one channel. Yep. And so, by the way, I did. I was a subscriber. Yeah. I was the only one in my neighborhood. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. It was a good marker. So, uh, (laughs) (laughs) some people could find the house. (laughs) I'm the guy with the giant satellite dish on it that gets one channel. Yeah. So we built that from nothing to $50 million in revenue. We had 100,000 subscribers all over the United States and Canada. It was Herculean effort. Stephanie was there with me back in the day. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, that started the journey in the personal development business. So then I, there's three different television networks over time. And then when um, my partner got the chance to buy Success Magazine, he brought me in to negotiate the transaction. And then, then I ended up becoming and taking over publishing it and rebirthing it. And it was, you know, so here's this historical brand yeah. that meant so many to so many people. And now you get this chance to go build this. And it, there's a whole business story there. But along the way, you also got to do something really, really cool. There, I have very little career envy, but having a chance as part of your job to interview the most successful people on the planet has to be pretty cool for a personal growth junkie. You know what's interesting? I was the perfect guy for my job because I wasn't starry-eyed about anybody or anything. It, to me, it was a job. It was, and then you, you, you spend time with a lot of these guys and gals and you realize, oh my God, like, yeah. you're just a, a human being that yeah. puts their pant legs on one leg at a time and yeah. you have fears and worries and anxieties and ambitions and hopes and dreams. And, and you know, I was always trying to look for the person that, behind the personality and right. that part was interesting but 
Yeah, it was fun and fascinating because of the little nuggets that I would pull sure. out and then, and then apply to my own yeah. existence. Give them the brag sheets. You don't do much on the brag sheets. Just give them a bunch of big names that you interviewed that uh, they that would we, know. That, that we had on the cover. I mean, everybody you can think of. I mean, Richard Branson, Steve Jobs, Elon Musk, the Warren Buffett, Oprah. I mean, everybody. Anybody you can think of. The great thing about running media companies, whether it be television or a print publication like Success Magazine, I always said we were a very unfair, unbalanced, and biased publication. The only thing we want to talk about is... The, the positive side of your yeah. story. You know, what you've done to encourage and make an impact and achieve. And I don't care about the other side of it. So we don't have to be journalistically balanced. And so everybody wanted to have their shiny face and stories told on the cover and the pages of the magazine because mm-hmm. it was a big PR profile. So everybody's trying to reach at these people. But when I call, they take my call because this is brand leverage for them. Right. And they're going to get the best PR third-party promotional tool for their business. So they get their face with the word success on the top of it. That's right. pretty good. Yeah. And we're going to write the best story about their greatness, not yep. looking for the gotcha yeah. that media does. Right. Yeah. So give me three of your favorites interviews that you did. And I know that's unfair, but that's what I do. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> Besides the normal, like, well-known names, the ones that, they're my favorite because they had an impact on me mm. personally. So the first one for sure is Louis Zamperini. Mm. The character in the book Unbroken by Laura Hillebrand, who wrote Seabiscuit, and Angelina mm. Jolie did the movie about him. Yeah. But a real, a real hero. We throw that word hero out too much and too often, but he was truly a remarkable American hero. And for what he suffered and the resilience and will, the fortitude that he had, and at 94 years old, the question I asked him at the end that was riveting to me as I said, okay, Louis. If you're needing me right now with a young person and they're feeling like, you know, that they can't go on, that they want to give up, what are you going to say to them to encourage them to go on? And he looked at me and he's like, I had to repeat the question. He didn't understand the question. And then I repeated it again and he said, well, why would they give up? Don't they have any self-respect? Of course you need to go on. What else is there to do? You know, and he just went into this whole like diatribe about how it is about self-will and self-reinforcement. Yeah. And I thought, man, and knowing what he suffered through and every time anything gets difficult in life for me, arduous or I I get whiny and complaining about the difficulty of my travel schedule or this, that, I think about Louis Zamperini. Mm. That's why he was so pivotal for me because he's always that that mental fallback that I go, it's like, okay, this is is not so bad. I'm not beaten in a a war. Did you meet his son? Uh Uh-uh. So when he would travel, he, he was a local guy right here. Yeah, and, yeah. yeah, and he came down and did a few things with some folks we had relationships with. And his son came. He was getting older, and his son would drive him. And I was sitting there. I was just listening. There was 25 people in a room. And he was doing this Q&A for this local company that sold spas. And next thing you know, I find out I'm sitting in the room next to his son. And I go, this guy, this is amazing. This is amazing. And he turned to me, and he goes, powered by forgiveness. Hmm. He goes, powered by forgiveness. Because I said to him, he's 94. He's out here talking and doing this and doing that. He was tortured beyond belief and this and that and the other. And, you know, he became an alcoholic in one stage. But he was powered by forgiveness. Yeah, and yeah. I, I mean, I was just like, well, it was one of the greatest seminars I was ever at by his son giving me one word. Yeah, yeah. You know? But, yeah, beautiful. Well, he was the kind of guy, like, when you're talking, you're looking at his eyes, you just see this force of nature raging behind his eyes. Wow. Same thing like you're talking to Jack Welch, 
And no matter how old Jack, there's just like this, this raging force. And Paul J. Meyer is like this, this mm. raging force of nature. Steve Jobs, you look at this, there's this raging force of nature. When I talk about how you communicate through feelings and that passion, mm. that will and fortitude, there's a few characters when you're looking at, you're just, you can feel mm. that veracity of their life force. Yeah. And it's incredible. The other guy that's like that, that I've met recently, it was a year ago, we had him come to our elite event as well is Bill McDermott. He's the CEO of SAP. He wrote the book Winner's Dream, which is really great. But he walks into a room and he, just you know those people, that they just change the room. They're not bodacious or brash, but just his, the spirit of his positivity, his view and perspective mm. on everything and the way that he touches people and communicates to people. He walked into our elite event. Now he's got 70,000 employees. 70,000 demands all over the world. He walked into our event. He knew every person's name and what they did in, in our room, you know, has nothing to do with his business. I invited him as just as a guest. I borrowed his time. I mean, I have trouble at that at home. Me too. I walk in. I, I know you begin with a, I know that. Yeah. So that was one of those, like, I need to be more like that. I yeah. need to be better at that yeah. when I enter a room. So that's the guy, if you could shove somebody into the chair of president of the United States, yeah. that's the guy you want. You sure. Yeah. He's Irish. How can you go wrong? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so maybe it was true on the attribute list. Got to be Irish to be great. I think so. Yeah. I think so. You know, I have pages and pages of notes. Anybody write any notes this morning? Anybody run out of paper? Yes. <laughs> Beautiful stuff. I'm going to get to some leadership questions. For you personally, we both know traveling. The only people who like traveling are the people who don't do it. Yep. It's horrible. How do you stay on top of your game? When I go into travel mode, I go into a, like a bubble. Mm-hmm. I go into a zone. Yeah. I got the earbuds in, and I just it's almost like I have to protect myself from the whole mm-hmm. environment. I'm walking to the airport. I'm waiting in line. And you, just, you have to almost sort of desensitize yourself. The environment in an airport is a caustic with the loudspeakers and the televisions and the people. So you just sort of almost go into this like cocoon. Yeah. And it's the greatest time for me to work because you can't be mm-hmm. solicited electronically. I never have once logged on to the GoGo in-flight. That's the worst invention in all of human <laughs> history because now they can still catch you yeah. 30,000 feet in the air. It's yeah. like that was my one sanctuary yeah. of, of head-down focused work that I can't do anything else. So... A lot of routines, a lot of rituals on the road. Yeah, yeah. You don't eat the airline food, mm-hmm. right? You just go into a very paleo type of diet. Don't eat the breads, you know, and hydrate sometimes with some gin. But just I'm thinking bit. wine. I'm thinking yeah. wine might be my challenge of hydration. Yeah. I always tell my dad, Dad, you need to drink more water. He's like, there's plenty of water and wine. Like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's great. Yeah. Okay, I want to dive into this stuff right here. Ultimately, how do you stop from being a boiled frog when it comes to being a leader? The culture, the media, all of these things you talked about. We're in the pot, and it's hard not to get impacted by it. And you see the the civility, the grace, the interactions. You know, people have learned to say whatever they want with anonymity in these capacities, and then you get exposed to that, and you see that, and, you know, we see how people interact and you know, here's the deal, whatever your politics are. Anderson Cooper's interviewing someone the other night, and he rolls his eyes at a question. Like, Walter Cronkite is passed. No. Yeah. Okay. He's rolling it's over like, his grave. Yeah. So how do you avoid being the frog in the pot, both personally and as a leader, 
and stay true to who you are and who you want to be aspirationally. A couple of things. One is, and I don't mean this to pander, but you do this. You continue to seek growth and improvement, and you seek those that are out there drawing from the world to try to come back and redispense to you the keys, the insights, the iterative adjustments to make along the way. So you need to scale your personal growth. Like mm. your normal personal growth that you need in the 20th century was, a, was an ascended line. Mm. But because growth and progress and change has grown exponentially, you got to grow your personal development commitment exponentially as well. So that is a number one. But now when you're out there looking at you're like, what are the innovations? What are the changes? What are the technologies? One really great warning I want to give you all is this. So I was on a publishing panel like this. There's five or six guys and gals. We're all deemed, you know, experts of our particular space. And they're saying, well, how has technology changed the publishing industry? What are the innovations that have created the greatest change? And they all go up the line and then they finally come to me, the e-readers and, you know, self-publishing and ready time press, all that stuff. And they finally come to me and I said, hey, really? More has not changed than has changed. And the mistake that most people are going to be making is is that they're chasing the change. Mm. They're leaving the fertile field of the way things are and haven't changed to go chase the shiny object over here, and their field's going to die. So what hasn't changed is we are all still human beings Mm. with an operating system that is 200,000 years old. And yet your iPhone right now is probably getting an iOS update in your pocket as you sit here. Yet you haven't had an iOS update in 200,000 years. So we're working off a very old nervous system, fight or flight response systems, the way we react and interact with fear and need and acceptance and all the rest of that. So what you want to do is remember what hasn't changed. What hasn't changed is we all are all still human beings. And we have the same fears, worries, anxieties, hopes, dreams, and aspirations about ourselves, about our family, the way that we are loved and cared for by those around us. Now you have to just look at all these changes and innovations. How is that affecting what hasn't changed? And then make sure that you're addressing in all your marketing and your business plan and your communication plan the thing that hasn't changed. And use some of these tools but use them in a way that still talks to the thing that hasn't changed. It's like we were talking backstage about social media and and all the rest of these technology tools. And it allows you to communicate, but it does not allow you to connect. Connection has to happen like this. That's why you show up to events. Why aren't you just in your office right now watching this on your computer? That's not going to be the same human experience that you need to ultimately experience the transformation that will make you different when you go back to your offices. It has to happen in a physical environment. So... What I fear is a lot of these people are like watching the Peter Diamandis's and all these like changes and innovations and they're getting themselves caught up in it and they're forgetting that really the fundamental baseline of your business is that it's people serving people. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. And use the tools as tools, not as a business. They're tools and people haven't changed and we still have the same worries and wants And, and as long as you're taking care of people as a person, not as a you know, a public figure on a social media platform, you're going to have a very fruitful future. Good stuff right there. Okay, beautiful. Thank you. <laughs> Skills, character. We talk about going here, going there. In a practical sense as a leader, you gave one example of having folks do a 360. What are some of the things as leaders we can do to grow in our skills and characters on a practical level? It's like, okay, 
here's a few assignments you might think of or ideas or tips you might have. Here's a skill you can develop in. How would you grow in that skill as a leader? The character qualities a leader requires. How do you go about growing in those areas? I think there are a couple of key skills most important for the 21st century that I would focus on. And that first one is is your ability to stay focused. It's your own self-management of your attention and your ability to to keep your focus. We are living in a world of epic distraction. All these tools and devices, we design these tools and devices. We're the creators of these tools and devices and we design them to try to make life easier and more convenient and to try to make us more productive. And in the beginning they did, right? Because you had from your couch in your underwear through your fingertips, you had access to a global marketplace of resources and information and potential consumers and and potential labor and capital arts. That was, it was magnificent. We had access to the world. But then what started happening is the rest of the world had immediate and direct access to you. Mm-hmm. And so now anybody who has a brain fart, something falls out of their head or out their back end, can email, text you, RSS, tweet, Facebook, that to you. And you've turned this mobile phone into an electronic leash. And because it is designed to be very addictive, Facebook is designed to be addictive, YouTube, Twitter, they're designed to be addictive, that it is at constant and ceaseless basis, like literally like a little noose around your neck. It is constantly yanking your attention and your focus off the thing that you're supposed to be focused on, which is the vital functions most essential to achieving the goals that you have for you and your family, providing a life and lifestyle. You end up, instead of having a life of creation, you end up having a life of reaction. And you realize every email, every text, every RSS feed is somebody else's agenda. It's somebody else trying to achieve their goals by yanking your attention. And most people are spending their lives reacting to that rather than creating. And so we've always needed to be focused and we've always had distractions, knocks at the door, phone rings, but we've never had the epic volume of distractions that we are faced with all day, every day. And this is truly a situation of where these tools that we've designed have turned into the tail that wags the dog. Mm-hmm. And it's not technology's problem. See, a lot of people go, oh, technology, I'll just become a Luddite. That's not the solution. It's like everybody blames the reason why they're so fat on all these big food companies that create all of this low-nutrient, high-fat, high-calorie food that's so easily placed conveniently around us all the time is the reason why we're so fat. No, it doesn't just fly off the shelves and jam itself into your pie hole. You got to reach out, go buy it, and then stick it into your face, right? So it's not the overabundance of food for why you're fat. It's the overconsumption of that food for why you're fat. Same thing with distractions. It's not the overwhelming distractions that we're surrounded with every day. Mm. It's your overconsumption mm. of those distractions yep. is the reason why you're mentally, emotionally, and psychologically obese. The real boiled frog syndrome is happening with yep. this. The absolute attack on our attention and our inability to manage ourselves yep. in that attack in order to thrive and succeed. I love these times because all my competitors, all my peers... They're all getting sucked into these addictive tendencies. Their focus is getting thrown off course. Their production is dropping dramatically as a result of their inability to manage themselves or even be aware of the behaviors that they've adopted. 
So I think it's going to be easier for those that show up, learn, and focus on the tools and the systems necessary to keep your focus and to keep control of your attention. If you learn that skill, your ability to rise out of the ranks of the mass horde will be easier today because your competitors are getting sidelined because of all these tendencies than it would have been back in the past. It's true. There are, you know, the 13 major industries in America in the last 20 years, 12 of them have aggregated an 18% increase in production because of technology. The real estate industry is one of the 13. Think about 20 years ago, real estate. Okay, I had a mobile phone. We've gone down 17%. Individual personal production in real estate has gone down 17% while the population continues to grow. Yeah. And we have five times the amount of technology we had. We've also raised... A, how many of you have kids who are stuck in phones all the time? Okay. The kids want to go to Star Wars last year. I was telling you about we go out to London, right? So we're going to go, okay, we're going to go a few days and we're going to actually visit London and go around England, whatever else. We're in London the first day. We've flown all the way across the country. We, da, 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 da. we get there. Well, I hire a driver because the English can't drive. And we're sitting around. And I look in the back and all six of them are like this. Yeah. And we just went by Buckingham Palace. And I go, oh, time out. You're interacting with your friends back in San Diego. We're in London. Here's what you're going to do. For the next week, the only thing that phone is good for is taking photographs. My kids are not, you know, the norm. They're not all antisocial, but they're losing their ability to be curious. Mm -hmm. And the wonder of it all, because I have it all here. Well, I have a picture of London, Dad. No, but we're actually experiencing London. (laughs) Okay? You're going to hear a Cockney accent. You're going to eat shepherd's pie. You're going to see the changing of the guards. You're going to, you know what I mean? And so that's the deal. And we're trading in something that lacks all the richness of life for saying, yeah, I got it. Yep. Yeah. I, I, you know, and so we, you know, and again, we use them, right? You, the podcast is a way to get people out there, but the podcast would not be as rich as people being here. The Darren Daly is fabulous. I start my day with you. Uh, how many of you do? Uh, yeah. How many of you do the Darren Daly? Let me see your hands nice and high. All right, right. I told you. Okay? Wow. And uh, and it's a great tool. Oh, you're welcome, by the way. That's very expensive. My wife is up my ass about that, by the way. The reason why I switched is the vendor, like, multiplied their price on it, and it was like, oh, I don't think we can do that. And I was like, ah, they're they're mad and upset. But it's very expensive. So thank you for the appreciation. Very expensive. Hey. I'm going to tell my wife that you said so, so thank you. By the way, hanging out with these guys is very expensive. Um, (laughs) No, but it's, it's great. So the point is, that's a great vehicle. The podcast is a great vehicle. There's these great vehicles out there. Just don't overconsume. Yeah. Don't become addicted. I watched that Simon Sinek piece. It was pretty cool. I used to have my phone by my bed. And now I don't. And it's a pain. Okay, it's in the other room. And I, ding. <laughs> you know, that's how I started my day. But I would start my day. And the next thing you know, I'm watching the different news stories. And, da, 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 da. and now, before I've ever talked to my bride, first thing in the morning, before I've started the day, before all my great disciplines and gratitude and this and any other, I've watched all this crap and I've let it into my home. I've let it into my house. And it was contaminating the house. And I'm like, you know what? If somebody needs to ding me that bad, they'll, they'll call. Mm-hmm. And so it's in the other room. So I charge my phone and I, I don't use it as an alarm clock. Our kids don't bring their phones to their bedroom anymore. It's, all their phones are charged in the living room. They have to do something called converse. And, uh, you know, it makes a difference. I, I right? just think if you can understand it this way, 
your attention is precious. Mm. Remember what I talked about on the event? Where you point your eyes, the direction your body will go. What controls your focus controls your life. And you're allowing whatever's happening on that phone or on your computer screen to control your life. So your attention is precious and it is a consumable commodity as well. And so you want to protect your attention. And it's not saying that what's happening on the phone or what's happening on the computer is bad. You just want to be the one who's choosing what, when, and how, and how much it consumes and what it is that on that platform you allow yourself to to consume. Because that input, as we talked about, that input ultimately is going to direct the outcomes of your of your life. But that attention just it's attention that's the important thing you want to get yep. reins on. Consume it. Don't let it consume you. Fair? I got one more for you, and then we'll throw it out to the audience here. Confidence. Yeah. You're the same Darren Hardy that went to that conference as an 18-year-old, but you're a different Darren Hardy today. I'm not the same Darren Hardy. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, no question. And so a lot of people say, you know, how do you develop confidence? You begin at something that you're not very confident in. And a lot of times, as I mentioned to you, sometimes it takes somebody else believing in you and seeing an ability in you that you don't see for yourself right now. You gotta borrow that a little bit from them for a while to just start trying. And then as soon as you start trying and you start getting some wins under your belt, then that actually is what starts earning confidence. Winning is what creates confidence. So when you're building a team, what you wanna do is you wanna set up some easy things for them to succeed at. Because that will give them the stride of, of momentum. Yeah. And then the more confidence one gains, the more courage they have. See, a lot of people think that you can't have courage until you have confidence. You can't have confidence until you have some successes. There's a famous story from Vince Lombardi who was working out his defense and he brought in a rookie quarterback and he asked the rookie quarterback from the sideline to throw passes against his defense. And... The rookie quarterback's like, oh my God, you know, the, the coach is calling on me. And he just sort of like stepped up his game and just kept throwing completion after completion. And Lombardi comes from the sideline, yanks him by the face mask, says, what the hell are you doing? Are you trying to destroy my defense? Start throwing interceptions. The training was for the defense. <laughs> he was trying to gain confidence in the defense by having this rookie quarterback throw interceptions (laughs) so sometimes as a leader you need to set up some easy Mm. wins for your team because as they start seeing and feeling successful they'll grow in confidence they get a little taste from the chalice of victory and now they thirsty Mm. for some more but they also can self-realize oh i can do this i can do this i can do this so setting up easy wins, letting them sort of grow into, I mean, the worst things you could do is give them a hard project and then have them fail and now start to feel insecure and incapable. And that ends up becoming the precedent in which they begin their career with you. That's not good. And you're not enabling them because ultimately you are going to keep stepping up. Stepping right? up. But they just need, they need a win. Yeah. They need a win. You see that all the time. Yeah. It's kind of like, uh, I remember a teacher did this for us in one of our classes. She says, hey, everybody. I want you to turn over the piece of paper that is on your desk, and it's like your name with an A. You have an A. Now, your only job is to keep it. But it was almost like, I got an A, I got an A. It was almost a sense of immediate sense of confidence. I got an A, I got an A. Now I'm capable of A, A work. Now I got to think, what do I need to do to, to keep my A? To keep my A. Not to, what's the best I could do in this test, but how do I keep my A? But it was just that, that initial little spark of like, mm. you've got something now. That's the standard by which we will judge everything that you do from this point forward. Give them an easy A. I like it. 
Okay, time for you guys. Raise your hand. You got a question for Darren Hardy. This is a unique opportunity. Here we go. Great. Hello, Aaron West, uh, Modesto, California. I'm never too busy for any of your referrals. Um, Darren, you know, a couple of things. I have just three quick questions for you. The first is, what's your favorite book that you've ever read? Okay. Uh, I mean, we'll take out all the, you know, religious stuff and all the rest of that. But for me, the pinnacle was Atlas Shrugged. Because when I was a younger... Say that again. Atlas Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand. Rand. Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand. I thought that I was weird. A-Y-N... Rand. Atlas. Oh, they're serious about getting this down. No, no. They're, yeah. no, they're going to eat the meat and throw away the bones here. When I was in my early 20s, I thought I was really weird. But as soon as I read that book, I realized that, wow, somebody else thinks like this. Somebody else has written about the way that I think and feel. And so it was a validation. It's like, maybe I'm not the weird one. Maybe everybody else is weird. Mm-hmm. Right? Validation. But my favorite book of hers is The Fountainhead. Yeah. And the fountainhead is all about individual achievement against what is the typical norm of society. It's just, it's written in novel form, but it's beautiful philosophy. And she's become so well known that a lot of times there's, you know, there's people really for you, really, really against it. Yeah. Atlas Shrugged is the most cited number one book for successful high achievers, second only to the Bible. So it just shows you that it's a pretty significant influence. And what book are you reading right now? <laughs> you got your PR agent in the front row? They're all my PR agents, these guys. He, he did get a signed copy with a personal note, by the way, just so you know. Yes. Because he's the man. That's what I'm reading. Yes. So my real question is, in all of your study of leadership, and what is the most common mistake that leaders make? Either new leaders or... You know, just just what have you seen across the board that is just a real stumbling block for leaders? Well, obviously there's a lot, right? Because we're all valuable human beings and whether they're in a position of leadership or not. But I I would say hubris is probably the the biggest mistake. Mistaking confidence with arrogance or that your ego is is a drive for ambition, which is good, but it can be an overdrive and make you obnoxious. So, I mean, you know, just think about some of our world leaders today and you'll get a good sense of what I'm talking about, right? I think it's the downfall. It's the beginning of the end. There's many biographies through history about where a leader gains confidence and then that confidence turns into arrogance and hubris and that becomes the beginning of the end. They start believing their own press. They start believing their own hype. They start thinking that they're the only ones that know the answers, you know, believing all their own assumptions and that becomes the beginning yep. of the unraveling. So I think um, hubris would yep. be the answer, yeah. History's littered with those people. Yep. yep. Who's next? Hi, Candace Kolb from Carlsbad. Hi. And Darren, I had a question. Do you have any specific advice or are there any nuances for realtors that are considering forming a partnership versus building a team? So when I did real estate, this whole team thing is a new phenomenon that I kind of don't completely understand, but I've heard it and it's working and I see that. That's great. But just in terms of partnerships in general, man, if you can do it without being a partnership, do that. Yep. Because, (laughs) Oh, there's some former partners clapping. Yeah. Those are former partners, Candace. I've had partnerships in a lot of the businesses that I've done in the past. And the most difficult situations I've ever had in the past is because I had a partnership and 
it's like, you know, marriage is hard enough, right? Yep. At least you can have makeup sex. You can't do that. <laughs> you know, you always got a fallback, right? Yeah. You always have that fallback. You don't even have that. <laughs> At least you shouldn't have that. <laughs> It gets complicated. Whenever you get two human beings in too close a proximity for too long, it's, it's just a matter of time yeah. before it goes wrong. And then you add finances in it, and then you add who's working harder, longer, who's the more important client. It's just the chances of it going bad are fantastic. So if you can do it without it being a partner, yeah. I highly recommend going in that direction. Now, you can build a great team that support, but Try to keep the financial ownership aspect separated. You can share in the victory. Like with my team, we share in victories. When we win, I want us all dancing in the end zone, not just me. Mm-hmm. So we will all share in the, in the victory, and I will compensate and reward and do things that probably are far and above beyond what anybody should be actually paid for. But I don't want to screw that magic up mm-hmm. by then having this equity partnership Just in the law of averages, the chances of it going bad are too significant. If you can stay the leader with a great group of people who support that and you share in the wealth and they all feel rewarded and recognized the same, that's the way to go, my view. And again, we have some good partnerships in the room that have made it work. The big issue, just everything he said is bang on. The one thing in real estate is there are people who drive the bus economically. In the early days, I've seen people who got a partner when they needed an assistant. And would you pay an assistant 50% yeah. of your salary? You're the surgeon, you get a, a nurse. The nurse's job is invaluable and makes you a better surgeon, but the nurse doesn't make what the surgeon makes. So it really is all about who's able to bring in the revenue. And that's where the challenges fall. So, okay, if somebody's bringing in 250 grand and you're bringing in 260 and you're in that kind of a space, great. That can work. But you're bringing in three, and they do the paperwork. You're bringing in three, they're working on the business. You're bringing in three, next thing you know, you turn into the wicked witch of the West. Right? Because it's not, it's not equitable. So that's, that's good advice. Yep. Who's next? Yes, sir. My name is Brian Yampolsky. I'm from Phoenix, Arizona. Yay, Brian. All right. Well, I've, I've been a lender for 25 years, and um, it's real easy to work on my business because it's kind of like when you were talking about travel and you have your own cocoon and you you can kind of control your environment. And the idea of leading other people or becoming a leader is much more difficult and it's a little scary. So my question for you is when do you know it's a good time to reach in that direction and become a leader of, of others as opposed to doing what's easier, which is just working on your own business? You have to decide, do you want to be a practitioner or do you want to be a business builder? If you're a practitioner, your income is always going to be limited to your own performance. So you're a constant transactional treadmill. You always wake up unemployed. You get hit by a bus, business game over. If you want to be a business builder that allows you to have scale and will start multiplying an ROI and effort, right? The old Andrew Carnegie, the OPI, OPE, OPM. Mm-hmm. You know, other people's ideas, other people's money, other people's effort. That is true leverage. So in order for you to get leverage to start multiplying an ROI on effort, you got to become a leader. You got to get others to do and turn labor into leadership where you stop doing and you start leading. So sometimes it's not an immediate switch. Sometimes you got to graduate into it. 
where you end up kind of booking and ending your day. Like I'm going to, I'm going to be a practitioner for six hours and then I'm going to work on the leadership Mm. and the team growth and dynamics, the culture aspects of growing our organization for two hours a day. And then you get it down to where it's, it's four and four. And then eventually as a leader, you're trying to do as little labor as possible and to lead and help others do the labor so that you can scale exponentially. But, you know, not a lot of people want that position. It's a, As I talked about, it's a privilege, but it's also a huge responsibility, mm-hmm. but it's also a huge opportunity. So not everybody's equipped for it. You know, the whole e-myth. Some people are great practitioners, but terrible business owners. And just because you can sell real estate really well doesn't mean that you can run a real estate sales organization. So you have to determine whether you want to. And then number two, whether you're willing to do the hard work to grow and develop yourself. Because what it takes for you to be skilled at selling real estate is very different skills of what it takes to run a real estate operation. And you'll need a whole new set of development skills to do so. So do you want to? And if you do, graduate yourself into it. Realize you're going to become somebody completely different than you are right now. And you're great. You're counting the cost. But the reason you're asking the question is you probably already know the answer. And mm-hmm. you know that. And it just gets down to what's your goal? I mean, don't become a leader for the sake of it. Does the business opportunity demand it? Are you turning down opportunity? You know, your philosophy, your process, your ability to process loans, build relationships, serve realtors, serve customers is probably pretty good. And you know you could expand that and you have to choose if that's what you want. If you really want it, yes, there's the cost and it's a price to be paid. And for a season, you're going to have two jobs. You're going to be both practitioner and leader. And it's busy. It's busy. And for a season, you do have two jobs. So you're right to count the cost, but you're already asking the question because you're already very close to the decision. But just make sure you make the decision instead of the decision make you. Okay? Okay, who's next? Hi, I'm Mary Beth Eisenhard with Long & Foster from Gainesville, Virginia. You said earlier, Darren, and I love Darren Daly. It's awesome. You said earlier, to lead, you only need to say, follow me. It takes one leader to speed the pack up. So my question is, in Buffini speak, I'm a rapid, meticulous, a refiner, and a justice. So what that means is I want it done quick, I want it done right, and I will always try to make it better. But there's no gray. It's either black or white. So my question is, I have a great team in place. I really feel like I do right now. One is a family member, my daughter. But my question for you is, what if you go at a fast mode, at a speed, and then they don't stay with that speed with you? I just would like you to talk to that because I feel like, and y'all can understand this, I do 10 Popeyes and I want to go do another 10. And it exhausts my team members. They're like, I'm done. And so I'm like, okay, rein it back in. We're good. But then I might go and do another five, not to spite them, but just because I got so energized from doing 10. So I need to know if they don't keep up with my speed, how do I lead them to go the speed I want them to go? Maybe you're outstripping them. See, one of the things on my team, we have a a couple of like mantras that we uh, operate by. And one is what's called OCE. Like most people will call it OCD, but we call it OCE, an obsessive commitment to excellence. We're more interested in doing things of high quality than even doing something bigger or even doing it more profitably. We find more joy and pride in our artistry of doing something excellent. Well, there are not a lot of people who can live up to that standard of excellence. I mean, we'll bring people on the team and we'll reduce people to tears because they just, like, they don't understand why what we're saying is not good enough. 
because we hold a high bar. Elon Musk said, hey, look, if you're choosing to work at Tesla, you're choosing to be part of the special forces. Now, there's the regular army, and that's all fine and dandy, but if you're choosing to come to Tesla, you're choosing to step up your game. And the expectation of what we require here is at a whole different level. It's special forces here. And so the other thing for us is, is rapid responsiveness. Like that is a key aspect of the rhythms of our team. And so if you don't have those two ethos, you're not going to find it comfortable to be part of this organization. You're just not going to flourish. This isn't going to be where you're going to blossom. And so we either have those people on their own volition or we help them get liberated back to the marketplace. (laughs) Because we look for the people who have like attributes. Remember the 12 attributes? Those are some really important attributes. And you have to understand this as a business leader, okay? And as a human being, this is an important clarity. The team you start with will never be the team you end up with. And you've got to allow yourself to graduate up. Because as you grow, you're going to end up having team requirements that are different then than it was back yonder. And either people are growing with you or you're growing past them. And so some of those people, you need to graduate up. Like Reed Hastings of Netflix says, look, we're not a family because families are dysfunctional and entitlement is bred in a family. We're a team. We're not a little league team. We're a professional sports team. And our job, and he's talking to his leaders, is we need to go and find star players in every position on our team. And over time, we need to figure out, are they, are they catching the ball? Are they blocking? Are they tackling? Can we go to the Super Bowl with that person in that position? If the answer is no, then we need to cut smartly. We need to graduate up as we grow and ascend because we've got one goal. One goal is to win the Super Bowl. Mm. So you've got to put the right players, A players in every position along the way. But it's hard for leaders because I like this person. We've been together for so long and it will be a sabotaging force. And you will hurt four people by not having the courage to do the right thing, to protect the sanctity of your team. This is the reason why it's difficult to be a leader because you've got to make the tough choices, but you will hurt four people. If you keep a person that shouldn't be kept, you will hurt the client because of the lack of superior performance that they deserve, that you want to provide them because you have allowed for mediocrity and weakness to exist on your team. Number two, you will hurt the other team members because they're all rowing the boat and everybody who's rowing the boat knows when somebody's not pulling there and they're having to make up for it. And you know what? You're losing credibility with them too because they know that you know that this person isn't cutting their weight and you don't have the courage to do it and your credibility goes down significantly. You're hurting that person because you already decided they're probably not making it, but you don't have the courage to have the difficult conversation to liberate them. And so their career, their future is being hindered because they're not going to flourish here. It's just not the right environment. And then the fourth person, you're hurting your family, your kids, and your financial future, the opportunity cost to let and allow this weakness to exist. So I hope that when I give you that context, because you're like, you, you love people and you don't want to hurt people and all the rest of that, but I want you to know that you're really hurting them and you're hurting four people, not just the one. The most difficult decisions to make as a leader are people decisions. And the most amount of money that you will lose is from the time that you recognize somebody isn't performing to their capability and the time that you actually grow the courage to do something about it. That is the greatest opportunity cost you will ever suffer as a business leader. Yep, Yep. great. Beautiful. Beautiful. Okay. So, just so you know, 
Darren adjusted his schedule so he could fly down and be with us here, uh, so he could be with this group, and we appreciate that, okay? Yeah, beautiful. He's a brilliant man. He's a great person. He's a terrific leader. He's poured his heart out to us here today. We're going to continue to partner up and do things together. We have a lot of synergies together, and we're excited for the future. We're going to do some things together and bring more and more Darren Hardy to more and more of our clients. And um, so they seem to like that. Thank you. So, wonderful. I want to thank you. It's just been great becoming your pal. It's been great working together, and I thank you really for being here today and blessing us. Thank you so much. Big round of applause. Come on, give it up. Give it up. Beautiful. Appreciate it. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's show. Our goal is to positively influence as many folks as we can with this content. So be sure to share it with others. And don't forget to leave a review on iTunes. We love hearing the feedback. You can check out the show notes on thebrianbuffinishow.com. We're on Android, so you can download your favorite podcast app from Google Play and tune in for free. So as I finish here today, I'd like to leave you with the Irish blessing that Brian Buffini always closes the show on. And it's one that his grandfather used to always say. May the roads rise up to meet you, and may the wind always be at your back. May the rain fall soft upon your fields and the sunshine warm upon your face. And until we meet again, may God hold you in the hollow of his hand. See you next time.